welcome to this episode of Keeping Track. My guest today is the Director of Forum Architects. Forum Architects specialise in new buildings and historic settings, repair and restoration of historic buildings, conservation of historic structures and spaces, and reconstruction, restoration of historic detail. Through his work, he has developed a deep love for his city, and this love and passion for Cork drove my guest to represent a campaign to oppose the Council and OPW planned flood walls along the Keys in Cork. The campaign argues that these flood walls would drastically change the feel and look of Cork as a heritage port city, and greatly diminish the view and connection the island of Cork has with its River Lee. The campaign is called Save Cork City and you will notice their Love the Lee slogan displayed at businesses around the city who support their cause. Save Cork City have been opposing the planned walls for over five years now and they propose that building a tidal barrier at Little Island or Tivoli would be a far more economically viable option, cause no interruption to the city centre, but also save the original 18th century key walls. So without further introduction, I'm delighted to welcome John Hegarty to the show. Thanks for coming on, John. Thanks very much. Would you like to give us your first tune for today? Yeah, it's uh, Sweden and it's self-explanatory. <laughs> That was Sweden by Divine Comedy, and that was picked by my guest today, John Hegarty. John represents the campaign Save Cork City. Can you tell us about your background, how you then became an architect, and how all that helped develop your connection to the history of Cork City? Well, yeah, I mean, I studied I studied architecture in Glasgow, actually, um, uh, which was a great city to go to because of just, you know, I came out of Cork, and then suddenly I'm exposed to this incredible art school and all these different ways of thinking and... Uh, looking at at the world and your environment, I suppose. 
and being exposed to all sorts of um, new cultural influences as well, which was great. And I think very quickly, even after my first year, when I came back to Cork, I thought, oh, my God, we live in a really incredible place. I never realised, you know, I, I grew up here and I took it for granted. But I started to see things that were uh, quite unique. I remember um, looking at the kind of the windows to the vaults in Christchurch, which are in the park and thinking, wow, they are amazing. You know, that is like something I've seen in Italy or whatever, but I never looked at it in Cork or whatever. And then I began to get more and more interested. And when I came out of college then, uh, I, I, I felt the need to be involved in conservation work, you know, so because there was such a need in Cork, there was so much that needed to be cared for. And I became interested in it and I started to uh, record it. And um, I've just continued to do that. When did you start Forum Architects? Uh, in 2000. I started it with my brother, Paul, who's a structural engineer. And uh, so we did a kind of a combined service of architecture and engineering uh, related to conservation. And we kind of at that stage, we had decided, oh, yeah, that that is what we would like to do. And so we've just been involved in various different things in that time. Uh, and we've always tried to to I suppose, you know, you do try you do work to keep your practice going and you do work to keep your soul going as well. So we did some of the work to keep our soul going um, that was related to the city and uh, repairing the city. Could you tell us a bit about that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we worked on on different buildings for for people who were investing in them where but um, we did a door on the North Mile, which was very interesting. I just knocked on the door one day because I kind of thought this is crumbling and it's timber and it's facing south and it's got about a year left. And we drew it up and we then took it to the council and we said, look, would you give full funding to this? Because uh, the people who had the property couldn't afford to match funding for it. And they said, in fairness, yes. And we restored uh, this door, uh, which is a timber door case, which is has the most accurate classical detail I've ever seen in my life and is in Cork. And you won't get anything like it in the UK. You won't get anything like it in the world. Um, and it's very interesting to wonder why that happened in Cork, you know, mm. and how much of it is lost, because the tradition was to make all of these things out of timber in Cork. Um, so they're vulnerable. And uh, very few of them are left. And I, I felt, you know, if they're gone, they're gone. And we'll never know. There'll never be a, 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 someone walking around town as a kid going, oh, my God, that's wonderful, because I can see uh, that there was something really special uh, done here in the past. You know, they're almost the evidence of that is almost totally gone in Cork. So that was my concern. Um, it's also a kind of a a nerdy interest in these things, you know. So how do you put together the jigsaw of, of an 18th century door case? It's really quite difficult, but quite interesting when it comes together. I've lived here all my life and I yeah. probably, I up till recently, probably took for granted, you know, what was available and what and the architecture in the city. So for somebody that is quite nerdy about it, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Cork and why it's so interesting to you? It's so interesting to me because there's so much left, but also I can see why there's a tradition of not caring for it as well. So it's been a successful city. So you had a medieval city which was walled in, uh, which kind of which was centralised along uh, North Main Street and South Main Street. 
And in if you visit other countries, you'll find that entire medieval city, you know, is is fully intact in other countries. And you have to wonder why it isn't in our country. But it's because we were so successful economically that we were able to upgrade and whatever. North Main Street was widened and all the buildings were had new facades put on them so they don't look like the medieval buildings they are, though you might find the evidence inside the buildings. So our prosperity actually uh, uh, maybe uh, overcooked the environment a little bit of the city, but it also allowed the expansion of the city. Now, whereas, say, in Edinburgh, they said, OK, let's abandon the medieval city for now. We'll, we'll, we'll live there, but we'll build a new city next door to it. And now they have both the new town and the old town. In Cork, we just kept on developing the old town and knocking and building and knocking and building. And that's more part of our tradition. And it's almost an accepted tradition now. But when you come into the 20th century and you have globalisation of materials and designs and ideas and you have fast pace moving economies, well, then it it passes the point of being a kind of a a kind of a, a natural ecosystem of growth in a city centre and it turns into destruction. You know, I think that's the feeling that, that we get as campaigners and the feeling that people get, you know, that we're trying to translate because there is a feeling of unease as people walk through the city centre now and you know how do you put your finger on it we're trying to say look this is these are the reasons it's happening too fast it's not happening carefully enough and when it's gone it's gone you know and we can expand there's loads of ways for our city to expand economically so we have no anti-economic argument Uh, it's just that we can care for assets that will then make us interesting enough to be a place that people want to live in and people want to visit and people want to come and work in or immigrate to or whatever this can you know this these assets that we want to protect and adapt are are great assets for our for our small city and our society if you walk around cork city today it is incredible the amount of dereliction and vacancy in the city center yeah um, I did have my first guest on the show was Frank O'Connor and we talked about the fact that maybe a lot of people that own these properties don't actually live in the city and that's a big problem because they don't they're not seeing it day to day they're not living yeah. in and around it yeah. it's interesting I, you see there's uh, it what I do think is that many properties that are in trouble now were owned by people who lived in them and had businesses in them and what's happened over time is that the march of, of, of car culture and things like that has pushed those families out into the suburbs. And then as time passed, those families may have decided to, out of viability or whatever, to change their businesses or relocate their businesses. So then the building that was the centre of the business in town had to become something that was let out. And then you have more time passing, you have people passing on and you have new generations. And it's just a natural development then that once people have moved out of an area that have a a direct interest in it, if you're living in a house, you might sweep the footpath in front of it and whatever. You might look after the environment, you might know all of your neighbours. Once that bond is broken, it's there are difficulties created. So I think looking at it in terms of people owning the buildings and not looking after them and not knowing that's kind of happened out of a series of events that define the 20th century that were defined by the economic growth after the Second World War, the type of growth that we were looking at from Ireland in the UK and maybe emulating and um, 
it's, you know, the, all of those reasons are behind it. And there are still some of those uh, families that might have owned buildings for a very long time that don't know, that are so detached from them, that don't know what to do with them. And, you know, people people say sometimes that there are technical issues. There aren't that many technical issues around repairing a historic building. <laughs> What's really happening is economic. So the other reason that the place or the city centre stays in dereliction, I think, is that it's not an attractive economic prospect. Um, if you don't uh, feel comfortable about what hap- might happen next door to you, uh, you will be cautious about investing. You will be cautious about buying a building. You'll be cautious about living in it. You'll be cautious about doing it up. You'll be cautious about putting your roots down there. And for many people, it might be your lifetime of investment. So while in other cities you have a level of change of building ownership that is organic and can be sustained, we've gone past that point and we have uh, a place that isn't attractive to invest in. And and, and it can be as simple as that. The problem is economic. Uh, And if if the city wants to solve it, the city has to make the city centre an attractive investment, perhaps having a charter or something like that and guaranteeing certain things to those that are willing to invest if they want to bring the money in and do it. Because the city can't just go around repairing all the buildings in the city and creating some kind of viable economic and social atmosphere. That's not going to happen. The real way to do it is to make it attractive to the people that will create that environment. So you have to make it attractive to different types of investor. And I would think that is business investors uh, um, and individual investors, families, single people, uh, people who want to run a small business in the city centre. You have to target a mix of people to try and generate a mixed uh, economy. And maybe you have to target the owners of the buildings as well to try and get them to reconnect. But it's if it's not an attractive investment, it won't happen. It doesn't matter how many pamphlets, how many books, how many times we talk about it. It won't happen if it isn't an attractive investment. In terms of the owners of these buildings that may not live in Cork City or they might or, um, or they might live somewhere else in the country. I know in Amsterdam they had a 10 percent dereliction tax or vacancy tax. And that really seemed to help Amsterdam because there was a lot of dereliction in Amsterdam in the 70s and the 80s. Yes. I think that really helped yes. either use it or lose it, basically. Do you see that as the right thing to do for Cork? It's a difficult one because I think uh, before you penalise your citizens, you've got to set the standard. So I don't think it's quite fair when we're not presenting an attractive investment environment in the city centre or you could say we're not running it very well we're not looking after it very well we don't even understand it very well Uh, we're having trouble uh, uh, creating an environment that's attractive so you're putting the cart before the horse there and people don't respond well to that I think if we as a society start to run the city centre well and make it attractive I think very much so your, your um, uh, you know, financial uh, penalties are the way to go. But if you haven't proved yourself or done anything successful in advance of that, I don't see why the citizens should accept that. I think the problem is that there are so many people who have their ideas about what successful urbanism is that we're, we, we ha- seem to have a system that can't find the people who actually know um, 
uh, and uh, so we have a problem between uh, those that are in charge of the city and those that actually do know how to regenerate it and look after it. And so from our point of view as a campaign, we just keep saying, look, we have to look abroad at successful cities. We have to engage with them. We have to say, look, we don't know what we're doing really. And uh, can you help us? And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. You know, it's we, we, we've had unusual circumstances in Ireland where we've had declining populations that causes urban decay. Um, and we've had um, lots of historic trauma uh, that has meant that people don't necessarily respond well to being, you know, having tax penalties or whatever before anyone's done anything about a problem. You know, that's yeah. one of the reasons that I think that that's not the start, but it could be the end game, you know. Okay. Um, so there's, there, I think we have particular reasons why we are where we are. We can say as a society, we can all talk in a room about it and we can say, look, it's OK to put our hands up even and talk to local authorities in other countries and people who are successfully uh, um, uh, uh, turning their cities around or have turned their cities around. And it's like Amsterdam, like Copenhagen. I think there, there are cities in France that have done incredible jobs as well. I mean, you and I could do a Google search yeah. and we could find five of them. We could say, right, let's concentrate on those, you know. Mm. I mean, in, in, in Poland, they're rebuilding historic buildings in the centre of some of the cities. They're doing a lot of work in the centre of Poznan and they have done in Warsaw. And they're doing it because they recognise that there is something uh, innately uh, comforting and the creation of, of well-being and groundedness and cultural and economic progression when you look after things in the public environment. And that's all recognised. You know, that's if you're if you're an architect or you're an urban designer and you've you've just even dipped your toe into this subject, you already know that this is recognised. So when you're looking at what's happening in Cork, you're wondering why these very simple facts that having recognised in other places to economically and socially regenerate whole cities are not being taken on board in our city. That leads me to a question I had in mind. As a people, are we just too complacent? Do we not see the value in our cities? No, no. I think all people all over the world are the same. We're not. We're, 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 we have the potential to be anything. And I think that. I think that we have had concerns that ha have maybe not allowed us to concentrate on issues like this. We've recognised the decay. It, it could well have happened because of economic decline and population decline. The combination of those two things, that's a huge damaging force on a, on a country. And I think because of that, we've had to focus on other issues. We can now focus on this issue and now I think we need to get it right because we're grown up now. We're a country for 100 years. We need to be grown up about this. And uh, I suppose when you get to the finer points of economic and social stability in your country and you're talking about uh, the protection of historic fabric from, you know, which is basically recycling our buildings and things like that and, and creating our environment, you're at your you are at a, a place uh, where you've uh, where you've gone past your economic concerns of necessity and maybe that's maybe this is one of the first times in 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 the past 100 years that we've got to that place but we're here now you know places like Copenhagen which has been described as one of the, one of the most livable cities in the world yeah um there's no dereliction because there's a huge demand for urban living now we are in a housing emergency so 
is it not special circumstances where the government can step in and go, people want to live in our cities, we've got a lot, lots of dereliction in all our cities. Should they step in and make these properties available, recycle them, get, you know, get families back into cities? Because it's an emergency, is that something the government should step in and take back all these empty buildings in the city? Is that too idealistic? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a huge political discussion that you could have about that. You know, when governments overstep the mark on any issue, uh, things usually go horribly wrong. And yeah. that happens in countries all over the world. Yeah. So uh, do we live in, in, in that society? I don't think the, the government's record of taking over things and kind of delivering them and economically and to a good result is great. But... Um, where is the balance to be found? You could equally argue, argue that we should just, um, you know, build. So I don't, uh, what, what, what I do think is that we just need to make the investment attractive. Okay. There are a lot of um, creative people in this country that would jump on an attractive investment uh, within, say, the historic centre of Cork. And very easily, the government could get a think tank together of how to take the knowledge from other countries, how to apply it. I think we need to do more than just, you know, uh, grants and things like that, because we're always looking at the economic stimuli that might do this. But there is more. You have to commit. You have to commit and say, uh, you know, the conditions that w that make in the investment attractive will be maintained, supporting people some properties are not viable because they're now on the edge of a five lane road, you know, uh, 18th century houses. Who's going to do up them? Nobody's going to do it. So maybe we need to make those kind of changes and maybe we need to commit to making those kind of changes, you know, and create more urban environment and maybe two lanes for the cars and things like that. And then that then the houses becoming become an attractive investment. We have guidance for housing for people in Ireland that we stick to when we're building houses all through the suburbs and yet we can't apply that guidance to what and say to people, well, we'll guarantee those conditions for you in the city centre if you are willing to invest. That's that, you know, that's a 10 minute commitment that could be made. Mm. So, you know, you could have a charter of 10 things. We will do this, 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 this and this. We'll get the bins off the street and like in other cities, you can go to your local shop and you can buy a bag and you you can put certain things into it and, and, and somebody will collect it. So you don't have to have three plastic bins wheeled through your very, very tiny house into your only recreation space in the city centre or up 20 or 30 steps because Cork is, a, is on a hillside or whatever. So there's things we just need to solve. That's one of them. There, there's probably 10 of them. And uh, if they were solved, uh, we'd be marching forward. In terms of the housing need, I think that that's another economic question. I think the government is kind of balancing the idea of property prices, which have been hugely inflated in order to get people out of debt that they would have been in in 2008, 2009. People were in so much debt, they, they owed much more on their property than it was worth. So I think the policy of not building houses, which has never been written down, actually exists. And so that's why we are where we are, because if you don't build houses, values will go up. But you've rescued your entire population, half of whom are in negative equity. But we rescued everybody about five or six years ago. And we have no plan for moving forward. 
Um, so, I mean, it's it's I don't know whether anyone sat down and did that. But if you look at the economic policies of other countries, uh, particularly the UK, you'll see that um, everybody who owns property and everybody who is a politician does well from the policy of increased property prices. Uh, everybody feels economically comforted. It's only those that don't have a home that don't feel that way. Yeah. Okay, I have one more question before we hear another tune. There's a lot to take this in there. So in Copenhagen, for example, in the city centre, apartments are very viable. They are very attractive places to live. Yes. In Ireland, are we too focused on the house with the big garden front and back? And should we look to places like Copenhagen where living in an apartment block where the outside the apartment you have you have a space designed where you can do your DIY. Next to that, you have a space where you can do your gardening. You can, you have a communal space for parties because you don't have a big house. The amenities are excellent. If you do decide to live in an apartment, should we look to that to solve our housing crisis in our cities? I think yes, but there's a few reasons why that hasn't happened for us. Um, the way our cities were built uh, was not uh, with apartments. I mean, in Copenhagen, they've been building apartments like they have in Paris for the past three or four hundred years or, or more. Um, even the king lived in apartments in Copenhagen, you know, <laughs> whereas we've always lived in houses that are cheek by jowl in an urban area and then spread out in a suburban area. So we have an issue with that. But I do think that in Copenhagen, you will see that their entire Docklands area has been uh, uh, regenerated with apartments and uh, with apartment living that we could emulate. And I think that the, the economics of apartment living is stagnating us because developers don't want to build apartments because they find that they can't put the labour and the material costs and the site costs together and then sell the apartments viably to anybody except perhaps, uh, you know, huge investment firms. And then all of our apartments become owned by huge investment firms and we become the renters that we didn't want to be in the 19th yeah. century. So uh, there is an economic issue there again, but that's partly related to kind of world economics and partly related to, 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 to the, the, the driving up of property and uh, and. Uh, prices that has was considered to be a necessary possibly policy 10 years ago. So it's kind of more complex. But in the end, apartment living is is probably our only solution. But in a city like Cork, we have to get from that small city place and make the leap to being a larger city place because for apartment living to work, you need services near you. You need uh, proper public transport. And it's very hard to kind of preempt all of those things and build them now for apartments that haven't been built. And yet people don't want to build the apartments because the services don't exist. So it's making the leap for Cork to make the leap. A lot of cities make a big, a, a small city to a big city leap in a kind of a natural, organic way. But they suffer badly, like London suffered, you know, cholera and all sorts of things to turn itself into a big city. Uh, but economically, it could do it because regulation wasn't big. They just turned themselves into a big city because it just happened. Now we've got huge amounts of concerns and we've also got that need. So do we invest beforehand or after to do this? So, again, we need expertise. We, and we need we need help and we need to make plans. And uh, I don't know how developers are going to want to build apartments and how there can be an economic return for them. And I'm not even sure if they're the only ones who should be building them in the future. 
but I also know that countries where the government builds everything always turn into something else that you and I might not like either. So it's a very, it's very, very, it's very complex yeah. for Cork. I think my brother says to me, how do you eat an elephant? And I think, well, you don't eat an elephant. But he says, well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. So maybe we have to approach this one bite at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might explain why, do you know, by the Dean Hotel, there's uh, two office blocks and one uh, block for apartments and the office blocks have been built and there's nothing, absolutely nothing done where the apartments should be built. And that might explain that the apartments would be too, too expensive to own. You see, you can build an office block with uh, just open, empty floors much more simply than you can build uh, the housing blocks. I do think there is a design decision that we should make now, and that is that all of our office buildings should be planned as uh, uh, as residential buildings before they get planning so that they have opening windows, they have balconies and they have possibility of being converted very easily. I think we should build a flexible building stock. Uh, those apartments uh, uh, that should should have have been built are probably just not an, not economical. And if they were built, the only economical way to sell them would be to sell them to a big investor, and then we'll end all, all, all end up renting them. Yeah. And that may not cause problems today, while well, everyone's got money and things like that. But that'll cause problems down the line. Okay, let's take another tune, John. One of my favourite tunes is uh, Beethoven's Violin Concerto. So I think we should just listen to that at this point because it'll calm us down a little yeah. bit and it'll just kind of ground us. You know? <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Beethoven's Violin Concerto and that is picked by my guest today, John Hegarty. John represents the Save Cork City campaign. John, I suppose we should talk about that campaign. <laughs> we should. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us about how you got involved and why you got involved? We were just a group of friends that got together one day um, uh, who were, I suppose, we were frightened and challenged by what was being proposed uh, by the OPW. We did think, of course, that flood defence for the city, that, you know, that somebody was addressing this issue was was a very good idea uh, when we saw what was proposed. I think, uh, um, I remember we had a, we had a meeting in, in somebody's house and there were about maybe 20, 25 people there and every single one of them was uh, horrified and felt, you know, assaulted by what they, they were seeing was proposed for the city. Um, and I suppose we kind of knew that if, people understood what was being proposed, that the whole city would feel assaulted by what, what was being proposed. So the, the campaign went from there. We, we got together as a group and we started to try to just uh, talk about it. We created events. We had events here in UCC. We had an event in the um, School of Music and we brought people in to talk about uh, how you might approach uh, flood defence in the city and how you might approach economic recovery and the protection of heritage. So we kind of stuck to that. And then in the background, we were looking at, we started to look at flood defence on a wider uh, uh, kind of uh, all-encompassing city uh, uh, perspective. So, you know, that's, I mean, it was just, I suppose it was, it was, it was brought about by by horror and disbelief, actually. I know that sounds very strong. <laughs> so for, for, for anybody listening that doesn't actually know what is proposed by the OPW, can you t- tell us a little bit about what, what their plans are? Yes, and I, and I have to tell myself when I'm doing this to be as fair as I possibly can to the OPW because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's the OPW drainage department who were asked to look at this. And they have an historic approach to flood defence that they were carrying through the city. And there are um, historic acts and laws that support their approach and everything like that. So it's not to talk about them as if they're, you know, they've got it all wrong and there's something wrong or whatever. And then, of course, the city was offered money for for all of these repairs and flood defence. And of course, it's natural within the systems that we have going that we can understand that they would have said oh yes give us that because we need money to repair the city so there was a lot of kind of um you know in campaigning uh, it feels like there's a lot of misinformation out there but actually if you look at it people are doing what they do every day they're acting in the roles that they're acting in every day and uh, it's it may be leading us to terrible places <laughs> but uh you can understand it. So the the Office of Public Works was charged to look at the issue of flood defence in Cork. And because they, um, the, their flood department is a drainage department, uh, their approach was to facilitate the f- uh, faster flowing water from upstream through the city. So the idea is you you just allow and facilitate the water that comes as rain into the landscape to get out to the sea as fast as possible and not to pool in areas that you want to keep from flooding. Now, 
we didn't know a lot about flood defence when we started. We know a lot about it now. And of course, this approach is an almost abandoned, uh, environmentally damaging approach uh, uh, throughout the world um, for many reasons. And one of the reasons is that it actually uh, creates a scenario where you have higher water in this in the city centre than you do where the citizens are living. For the first time ever, we'd have a planned system where you would come out of your home and there'd be water maybe a metre higher than where you're standing or more. And of course, historically, people understand that that leads to a catastrophic flood event. Eventually, once you pass that point where you're trying to keep the water in the river down below ground floor levels. So that's a fundamental approach that's been abandoned or would be avoided under almost all circumstances unless you were in, had no other option. Um, and scary for anyone living mm. in the city centre. Now, when we're looking at a city centre that people don't want to invest in economically because of the, the it's not an attractive investment, and then that scenario is being introduced, that's very frightening. That was very frightening for us. And also very frustrating that these flood walls were being promoted as a solution to our problems, <laughs> which was basically... Uh, we, we we think that in some cases the flood walls were understood even by politicians to be the wrong approach but the idea was oh we'll do them and then we'll fix the problems afterwards again because big capital projects are um, employment generators and things like that yeah. and so it was very hard when we were saying oh this is completely the wrong thing to do embarrassing for some people and very difficult for people to turn around on in terms of saying no to investment. So that, that was the, the two big things that were uh, against people doing a U-turn on this. And then, of course, we were, I suppose, implying without saying it, that the that, that you know, having worked on this project since 2014, where it started as being, you know, very small project, you know, of about 20 million euros and then went up to about 200. And it's probably at three, four, five, six hundred. Well, no, maybe not six. I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but, you know, we do know the, the children's hospital. This small project that might have been appropriate as an approach uh, in a small way back then, then grew arms and legs into this huge project. And uh, somewhere along the line, it became the most inappropriate thing particularly when the water levels in the river were uh, higher than the ground floors um, in the plans. And also the speed that the river was to, to flow. Uh, it, it used to be controlled down to 100, I think it's 100 cubic metres per second flow. And it was being facilitated up to two, 200 and more. And in some cases, up to 400 cubic metres per second flow. Now, those uh, I may be misquoting those figures, but those figures can be found online. Anyone can do it and they will horrify you. So the idea that in other cities, their rivers are being slowed down, made, made better environments, uh, be better habitats uh, for nature and safer for citizens, those that fall in or those that want to swim in them or whatever. Uh, at the idea that we were then creating a scheme with all this investment and opportunity for betterment that uh, was speeding up the flow of the water in flood events to torrents, you know, uh, that didn't sit well with us either. We we couldn't, we couldn't, you know, 
in all our discussions together, we couldn't justify that approach in any way, shape or form. So there was the danger that was being proposed as well. And we can understand why this approach was taken, because it's the historic approach. But we just thought, no, no, that's not right now. You know, the interesting thing about the campaign is that you learn a bit more about how politics works and how media works and things like that. And we were finding that people were saying, oh, but there's an SPC, a protected environmental area further down the harbour in, in, in starting in further than man, that little island. Mm. And so what we were saying couldn't be a proposal. But yet this torrent of of flowing water proposal would be hugely damaging to that. So uh one of the points that we learned was that when people are cornered in some way and you hear someone making a statement that is negative about something, you will often find that the absolute opposite is the truth. Uh, when someone says we're we're going to look at that issue and we're going to put all of our heads together and we're going to uh, we're going to tackle it, you know, when you hear that proclamation outside uh, Leinster House or the City Hall, that probably means there's just been a meeting where they've said we're giving up on that completely. And so, which is, you know, there's some level of awakening there that we're learning that these are the, the processes because we know what the facts are about this project. So we're we're learning, oh, that happens and this happens. And we had to adapt to that. And some people um, uh, that brought some people who knew about these things into the campaign and some people um, out of the campaign because actually it's quite mentally difficult to take that information. Sorry, there's a lot there. There is a lot there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just wondering then, cosmetically on the city, what's proposed? How do you see that working? Well, cosmetically, unfortunately, um, I think uh, those that would understand how to make interventions into a historic environment and protect that are not involved in this project, are not fully involved in it and not encouraged to be part of it. And they would be the starting point. So if you didn't object to all of the technology around the proposal, which is which you could easily object to, uh, you could also object to the approach to the historic fabric of the city. I mean, you've got you've got medieval key walls, you've got medieval uh, bridges, you've got uh, incredible 19th century constructions, you know, at the height of of power, wealth and uh, investment, uh, many of the keys in the in the centre of Cork were built um, highly unique in world terms. I mean, these are things that people should be coming to Cork just to see. And um, very severe damage was being proposed uh, uh, to this environment just in terms of, I suppose, the architecture of it. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, and what it represents in terms of engineering. Um, I think in Parliament Bridge, one of the most important bridges in the city, that you you could see similar bridges in in, you know, rural landscapes uh, planned in, in, in the 18th century was to have the end cut off it and concrete walls were being added along the tops of the quays to hold the water back. And uh, ultimately, there were kind of apparent concessions made to clad them in stone. But I mean, you know, shopping centres are clad in stone. You know, the, the approach, the, the entire approach was, it was almost as if the, the people that could understand how to intervene in a historic environment successfully uh, were held away 
from considerations of this project. It was so crude. And it still is. The proposals still are very, very crude and could be far more considerate, far more elegant, far better for the people of the city. We, we held a design competition early on of ideas of you know how you could uh, actually approach these issues better. And you could see that, of course, yes, it is possible. There are cities in Europe that have built flood walls 200 years ago, but they built them four metres back from the edge of the key walls so that the majority of the time people use the keys. But in times of flooding, you just didn't go into that area. In Paris, they have upper keys and lower keys, you know, but Paris is is a much bigger scale. But, Mm. you know, different cities have approached these issues kind of physically and structurally in the past when maybe they weren't looking at the environmental issues or maybe they weren't trying to front all of the water from upstream out into the sea all of a sudden. But um, what was proposed in Cork was the crudest of approach. And when you think of the amount of investment and uh, the money coming from people's pockets into their own city, you have to wonder about how the whole system of local government is working if we're saying, look, this is a bit too crude. It's obvious to everyone that it is that it is too crude. And yet uh, uh, the, 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 the outcome of that is that the city is willing to fight you in court about it rather than just sit down and have a, have a short conversation about it, which we could all have and we should all have. You know, that is uh, that is frightening. This uh, the campaign shouldn't have gone on as long as it has because uh, the approach to building in historic environments is defined internationally. It's defined by organisations like UNESCO and ICOMAS and there are charters, there are reports about how you approach historic environments. Uh, there's the, 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 the NARA document from ICOMAS, uh, which was put together in Japan by, uh, you know, a, a lot of different uh, countries in consideration of maintaining the authenticity of built historic environments. So these things are known. These are just two page documents that you can read and you can go, oh yeah, everything in there makes total sense. That is the standard by which other cities and other countries are intervening in their urban environments. And yet it seemed to just not exist in our project. You you would have to do a, a, a greater conservation report to, to build a few square metres onto your terraced house than was produced for this project. So that was very frightening to us, that there were processes of government that could push things through that would ignore or avoid those processes that we would all individually be forced into in terms of heritage protection. And yet for the entire environment of our city, they can be totally ignored because it's all being done under the Arterial Drainage Act, which is an act that was brought to be in order to drain rivers to create more farmland, which has its origins in the 1920s and then in the 1940s. So um, you could argue it was entirely inappropriate for an urban area, Um, but it can force through these kind of projects. So there's a huge issue there in terms of the law, in terms of planning, in terms of fairness for the citizens by which this was all proposed. And of course, if it had to go through ordinary processes that everyone would expect, it would never have got as far as it got and everything like that. And people wouldn't have uh, had to defend it or defend the indefensible. And, you know, the whole thing wouldn't have 
necessarily grown where where, where it had got to. Kind of like Cork City itself. It sounds like a murky swamp to navigate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to kind of bring it down to an everyday level. One of my favourite views in the city is if I'm standing at Callanan's Bar yes. on George's Quay. Yes. And you have to your right, you have the river and you have all that old wood, all the old wooden um, posts for the, yes. for the boats. And then yes. uh, to your left, you have all the old railings down Sullivan's Quay. Yep. And if you look ahead, I think it's Parliament Bridge where you can see Shandon directly in front of you. Yeah. Down through Princess Street and you see yeah. Partick Street at the end. Yeah. I'm trying to think with the proposed key walls, how would that view change? That whole aspect, how would that change? Yeah, I mean, that is the view that um, pulls at our heartstrings, you know, and uh, that that view has been in trouble since the 1960s because you had the proposals for the motorway, the I think it's the BKS system, uh, motorway system for the city mm. that were, were brought in then. And part of that proposal was that there'd be a, a road running up at the end of the Grand Parade which led to the clearing of buildings on the edge of the water there, which then ended up being abandoned as a plan, but left the car park that was there and left the derelict land uh, at Beamish and Crawford and all of that. And very unfortunately for Cork, uh, these proposals were removing buildings on the edge of the water in the medieval city that were iconic to the character and identity of the city. Um, you then had a bridge uh, inserted from the end of the Grand Parade, which was really handy. But if you look at all the views of Cork that existed historically, that bridge kind of was put in front of them. It might have been a little bit further down or whatever. And you're, you have decisions made that intervene in the landscape of the city that aren't considered. I think that's a problem with planning in Cork. In many cities, you actually have to look at your proposals from different points of view and you have to present that to the public uh, uh, to protect the landscape of your city, like protect the views up to Shandon to pr- or, or protect the views down to St. Finbar's from locations like that. So the impact of the walls were such that um, concrete shuttered uh, 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 flood walls were being placed on top of the historic key walls almost as barriers to uh, um, stop us falling into the river but also meaning that we couldn't really see the river from the city and in many cases to hit the flood level that they had decided was our big problem or would be our big problem in the future the keys in the city are all at different heights, so the lowest of them would have to have the ground on them raised as well. So the ground from your front door was to slope up to the walls and then the walls were to be put onto it. So where you might think where where where, where you might be told in the media that the OPW is only building a, a one metre high wall on the edge of the river, underneath that is another wall to retain the rays of the landscape that they're proposing. So in some cases like Grenville Place or even Father Matthew Key, you might have um, 1.8 metres or more or less. You know, it changes all the way along the key. So I don't want to be I don't want anyone to say that I'm misquoting what's happening. You can look at it all for yourself online. Uh, But you might have those types of heights of walls built in front of your property and then a re-landscaping to try and cope with that. So you would then have no, you, you, you'd then have no um, uh, view into the river. You, if you fell into the river, um, uh, you'd be much more detached uh, and 
uh, any views that you did get of the river if you walked right over to the edge of it and looked into it uh, would be distorted by the fact that there weren't any railings there anymore. Now, concessions were made that weren't even asked for because there was no conversation uh, to put in um, temporary flood defences down these keys. But all that did was statistically uh, uh, um, kind of bring us into a place where it was almost guaranteed in the future that we would have a catastrophic flood event because if you're relying on hundreds of these panels to be put in the flood event and you're allowing the water flow at these crazy levels and speeds well then one small part of human error would mean that the catastrophic flood event would happen like what we would argue that keeping the the levels of the water down in the river should be our aim um uh, for many many reasons and there's huge technical reasons about drying out of foundations and everything like that and subsidence in buildings and everything like that that we feel are, are still a very big worry. But so just visually in all the different locations, this was going to be huge. And if you've ever seen flood defences where people say, oh, no, no, we'll put in panels of glass and whatever. Those panels of glass have big, thick frames. They're not kept clean. You can't see through them because the glass is is so thick and so strong that it's kind of green and all these kind of things. Um, the environment, you know, say of a modern kind of shopping centre in the suburbs or something like that is more like the building approach that was being applied to these very historic keys. You wouldn't see it in the centre of any other historic city. There's there's no way, unless you were really living in an impoverished place that that could say this is our only option because other options are too expensive. But that again isn't the case in Cork. Before we talk about the tidal barrier, let's take another tune, John. Muse. The Origin of Symmetry was an album uh, that Muse uh, put out in the 90s, I think, and I think I just played it over and over and over again. And I've just cho- chosen Newborn because I can't choose a song from it. That's that's the first song on the album.
and I was picked by my guest today John Hegarty John represents the campaign Save Cork City and you might have noticed their Love the Lee slogan around the city we have talked about the OPW and council proposed walls around the quay I want to talk about Save Cork City's proposed tidal barrier next Okay. I know the OPW have said that a tidal barrier would not be economically viable in Cork until we have more than half a metre of sea level rise but that seems to be kicking the can down the road because from the way I see it we the threat to Cork City is the ocean and it's not the river I know we have two dams upstream, yes. which is saving us from the river. So what are your arguments for a tidal barrier? I think there's many things being said about a tidal barrier. You know, it could work here, it could not work there. The ideas I was talking earlier about that that it might have environmental impact. Well, the environmental impact of the walls is we would consider far, far greater. And the whole philosophy is just taking us backwards because we're interested in water quality as well and we should have safe drinking water for every citizen of this country and all the groundwater in our country should be safe. That's a different issue but it actually is related to how we manage land and how we uh, 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 create flood defence as well. Um, So slowing the flow of the river is what we think is the right philosophy for Cork and that, that those considerations in relation to upstream in Cork are not as pertinent as they would be in a city without a dam. So we have two dams upstream in Cork and those dams are being managed currently to keep us safe from upstream flooding. Now the flooding that we do suffer in Cork of course is tidal flooding but it's also tidal flooding that is mixed with upstream flooding. So you can look at the Thames Barrier and uh, a lot of the instances of problems that they had in London were, were when upstream water combines with downstream water um, and there's if there's no control at either end you, you, you can be in big trouble so we have the dams at one side so we're we are proposing uh, something like that downstream in order to uh, make sure that the upstream problem and the downstream problem don't meet in the center of the city it's a very simple approach we have the lag and weir in belfast uh, it was a highly economical tidal barrier, which is what it is. And um, we are just proposing that something like that is introduced in Cork. It's not an unknown idea. It's not a it's it's not a technology that can't be worked out or anything like that. And um, in most cases, it's highly economical. And um, we had proposed it at Little Island because the argument against other locations is that there isn't enough space behind it to allow upstream water to fill the space behind the tidal barrier while you're separating it from the the sea. Um, There was a proposal for a tidal barrier further out into the harbour, 
but our location is a balance of all circumstances to reduce the environmental impact of a tidal barrier. If you if you do it either side of Great Island, the, the environmental impact is 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 almost catastrophic. If you do a tidal barrier at Rotus Point, you're changing the entire environmental form of the entire harbour. It's just it's too much. Um, if we build a tidal barrier at uh, Little Island this year, it might have been closed uh, two or three times, and the environmental impact would be almost nil uh, it, because of that circumstances. That's two or three times in 365 days. But it would protect the city, would protect property, and uh, is also proposed in shallow water. So that's the last time you have shallow water in the harbour. As you go further out, it gets much, much deeper. Um, the proposals by the OPW weren't thought about that greatly. They presented them first, and the tidal barrier they were emulating was the one in Rotterdam, which is in a flat area, and they presented a tidal barrier in Passage, which has high land either side. And it was actually presented backwards. There couldn't have been that much. You know, the gates were presented backwards. They weren't holding the water out, they were holding the water in. So it there wasn't a lot of consideration given to it because it isn't something that the OPW drainage part has ever considered before. And even their consultants had never considered anything like that before. So it was kind of we could build this, it would cost a fortune, but we're, we're not thinking of doing that. Now, here's the walls project, take it or leave it. That seemed to be the consultation. It's interesting because um, in, say, Bridgewater in the UK, um, and, uh, you know, the, the citizens were presented, I think when they did decide to build a, a tidal bear, they were presented with um, uh, five or maybe six different options for the location of it. So the location, while it is a consideration, the location means that uh, if it's to be totally passive, you push it further out and you create all the storage behind it in Lochmahan and whatever. Another reason for doing that is not to disturb people who are in recreational activities on the river. So it's, that's another reason. Uh, and But also, if you bring it further to the city, well, then they use high level pumps to make sure that there aren't any problems. So, you know, uh, there can be a lot of uh, uh, statements made about what will work and what won't work. The figures, as we looked at it, uh, building a tidal barrier in a localised area further downstream would uh, cause a lot less impact on the city centre and would be far, far cheaper to build. So that's what we believe. That's what we continue to believe. We've re-examined that every time somebody from the OPW says that it's not the case here, there or whatever. There were reports done by their consultants that said you'd need two gates in it. We've gone back to our consultants and they say, no, we don't even know why that's being said. But what, why a lot of things are are said is, I suppose, uh, you know, if you have two gates, it costs a lot more than one gate. Um, we're looking at a very simple, passive solution to an issue. And I suppose it is challenging when we present it because it isn't something that was considered in very much depth because the body that was asked to look at flood defence in Cork was not, uh, never considered these things. And in fact, we had to step back and think, well, how would this even be done in Ireland? Is there a structure governmentally that builds uh, 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 sea defences in Ireland 
other than, say, the Department of the Marine that might build them for other reasons other than flood defence? And, no, and the answer is no. Is there a process? No, there isn't. Does anyone want to create one? It doesn't seem like it. You know. This might this is divisive. I, I'm going to say this, but um, I know you, you have to stay fair and um, and unbiased. But when I look into this issue or read about it, it just sounds like the argument for the flood walls to me is as simple as it's jobs for the boys. You know, it's going to create a lot of jobs for somebody, and it's going to be a lot of construction, and it's a huge project, and a lot of money is going to be spent in it. And you're proposing a tidal barrier, which really is kind of looking to the future. I mean, the OPW say that there will be a need for tidal barrier when sea levels rise more than half a metre. So that probably will happen. So why don't they just preempt it now? Is there too much money involved in the walls to pull out of it? Well, how many how many jobs it would create is 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 a separate issue, but it is relevant because if you built a tidal barrier, Cork would be open for business from the day you announced that that was your intention. And that could happen tomorrow. Uh, getting getting the keys uh, built on and p- getting people to invest in the city. One of the things that could be in the charter is that we will protect you from flooding, in a matter that is that you believe, you know, will work. Um, not we will build flood walls in front of your properties for you know five or ten years, and when they're finished, uh, 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 you won't feel safe, or there'll be a problem with the structure of your buildings because of what we've done to the to the groundwater, which is which is what's being offered on the other side. So, in terms of what we were talking about earlier, the regeneration of the city, the tidal barrier kind of wins out, hands down. So, the tidal barrier is the economic solution that would create many, many, many jobs more than just, uh, you know, the excavations and whatever would be involved in building uh, the walls. So I think in terms of job creation, the tidal barrier is by far the big winner, if anyone wants to kind of take on that idea. Yeah, sorry, I I don't want, I'd like to remain kind of unbiased as well, but I just get that sense sometimes that when something like this is proposed, a lot of people might be promised contracts and, Oh, yeah, people are invested. And then there's influence, you know. Okay, so people are invested in the idea, of course. And I would say, unfortunately, you know, say the children's hospital and flood defences, they were ideas put forward by the government after 2008, 2009, economic crashes and things like that. And I'm sure they were thinking, we can't put forward investment in any fickle things because the mood of the people is so bad. People are in such economic hardship. We will have to put forward ideas in investment that really, uh, you know, in things that uh, everyone can support. And so, um, Flood defence, flood defences. We've got someone who can do flood defences here and we'll put forward that idea and we can go around the country creating flood defences and that will help to create jobs and whatever. And it just seemed like a good job, a good idea to everybody. And when you think about it, yeah, in very simplistic terms, it is a good idea. And it would fix up the keys of Cork as well that are that are not looking as if anyone has maintained them for years, which is another issue because as, as the port leaves the city, they no longer have to maintain them. So, um, And so, sounds like a good idea, would create jobs. It's all perfect, but yet 
actually, no, it's not a good idea. It's a very bad idea. <laughs> it wouldn't do much for anybody. It, was, it could set us back, you know, 50 years in terms of the development of our city or, or, or a couple of generations. OK, let's take another tune, John. We are going for more classical music. This is Bach's Cello Suite. <laughs> Cello Suite and that was picked by my guest today John Hegarty John represents the Save Cork City campaign John I just wanted to ask you about the proposed OPW walls around the Keys now I know Cork is built on a marsh and I just wondered about issues of subsidence and the foundations and building on top of that putting more and more concrete on top of that is that an issue? Yes uh, we had um, research done on this issue um, and found that the city basically has a water table that is very close to the surface of, um, you know, the ground that we live in every day. And that water table moves up and down in a flood event. So that water table, if the water in the river was allowed to be high, would push underneath the city and also equalise as being high in the city. So. Uh, when we talk about the catastrophic possibility of a flood event because someone didn't put in a temporary barrier around the city, there's also 
the water rising up through the ground that uh, is highly pressurized when you allow more water to flow in the river rather than less. So if you can imagine water equalizing itself all over the city when you have high water in the river that's facilitated by design purposes that, that you know that are being proposed, you can imagine that really trying to equalize in the city center and then coming up onto the ground. Now, flood water comes from under the ground uh, if you're around the, the, the city centre and there's a flood and it's rising or even topping over the edge of the river, say, on on, on, on one of the, the, the keys around the South Keys, you'll find that there are people uh, around the Oliver Punkett Street area uh, uh, looking at water rise, uh, push out through their skirting boards or one one place has it coming up through a lift shaft and things like that in the city. So the idea of building walls to stop that happening is is an interesting concept. So there's a lot of pump stations and pumps proposed and everything like that as well. But also there's the, the very um, uh, alarming issue of creating flood walls all the way along the quays, which are actually all proposed to go underground as well behind the quays. This is a massive, massive disruptive uh, uh, proposal that it might dry out in times of of dry weather, it might dry out the the foundations of buildings in the city. So the walls themselves as barriers to the movement of water would dry out foundations in some circumstances and over wet, wet the city and cause flooding internally in other circumstances. And so the proposal doesn't work without all the pumps, but the pumps can't there's no system for rewatering foundations. Now, what happens when you dewater historic foundations, which in many cases are of timber, is that you get subsidence. So you're really playing with fire to try and alter what is a, a balanced system underground in Cork City. And people know about this because there are people who live in historic buildings that have had large buildings, car parks or large infrastructural buildings built in the city centre without naming the locations where when those buildings or basements have been built, they have experienced flooding in their own buildings for the first time ever. So the displacement of water underground in Cork City is uh, highly unpredictable. Uh, their are highly unpredictable circumstances are created from that. So if you imagine this huge displacement of 15 kilometres of water relying on pumps that would be handed over to the city council to maintain and then also combined with having to put in temporary barriers, the city council would have to do that as well. Uh, if you can imagine the disruption that that might cause and the following, uh, it, it, it is possible, we think, that if it was all built, it would have to be abandoned and it would have to be broken through in order to regenerate the conditions that exist now to prevent, you know, say, Holy Trinity Church from, from having serious uh, uh, structural uh, problems and structural problems continuing through the city centre that nobody can predict. So flood walls might work in a town and this is probably the largest flood defence ever proposed in the state. As but walls, is it taking yeah. into account that, for the walls, yeah, is it taking into account that Cork is a marsh and it's very, very unique? I mean, in, in the South Terrace, water comes up from underground. I've seen it 
push uh, uh, manhole covers open and, and bubble out of, the, out of the ground. It comes out, and these studies have all been done, you know, in, they've been done by UCC actually. Um, these studies show that water is coming from underground and that the water table underground and how it's affected by the tide and how it's affected by the levels of water in the river are, they're directly connected. And they can be studied and they can be un- understood very easily. And yet they aren't understood and haven't been studied in terms of the, the, the OPW proposal to the point that they can conclude that this will work. It's kind of a bit of a suck it and see, let's just build it and then we'll deal with the problems. But the problems would keep growing. What do you say to people who think we need both the walls and the tidal barrier? I could say you're wrong or you're right. You know, it depends where they're <laughs> coming from. We do need, uh, we could easily put uh, um, some small intervention in Morrison's Island that would upgrade the area and uh, help that area of the city in relation to small flood events. We could do that. It would be sensible. You can call that walls if you want. We call it, you know, urban regeneration or we call it repair of the of, of the existing keys. You know, um, the idea that we ever would create the walls as proposed to the levels that are proposed, we think is ludicrous because it's a double spend of something that would be abandoned and cause huge economic problems for the city. The walls would cause huge economic problems, not just because of their effect, but if you can imagine the main drainage project multiplied by many times in our environment, I mean, the city centre would be completely hollowed out by the time this was ever completed. Um, So economically, it would be impossible for, for many people to survive through it. And then for what? What's the benefit? And when people talk about economic impact, they might say, oh, this will cost less than this. But what is the economic impact of this in in economic terms? And we have published on this as well. You can see it on our website. It would be disastrous for the city on so many levels for for for, for people. Certainly the attractive uh, uh, nature of the city as a place to invest in would take a nosedive if this was ever started, we can't even believe it's ever considered. And this is a very important point. The minute you say that your plan is to do this, you stagnate. It could be that what we're looking at, the stagnation that we're looking at, which is being promoted by government and local authority, is actually being caused by the idea that they're saying we could actually propose and do this and force you all to have this in your environment. Uh, That could be the thing that is removing investment from the city centre because not only is it saying we're going to force the wrong idea on you all, take it or leave it, like it or lump it, and we're right about everything and we don't want to discuss it, but it's also saying you never know what might happen to you as an investor in Cork City, so why would you put your money into this? And that idea, we couldn't understand that that idea wouldn't just be left behind a long time ago because if you said we're going to build a tidal barrier, we're going to care for this beautiful place and we want you to come in and invest. What a different picture that is. That could be done overnight. That could be released as a prospect tomorrow morning and that would regenerate the city. Give us another tune there, John. Okay, look, we're going to go for the violent femmes because it just reminds me of, you know, being in college and just being a little bit angry about the world, but also great times. (laughs) 
person to talk to, someone who cared to love, could it be you? Could it be you? Situation gets rough, and I start to panic, it's not enough. This is a habit, it can you sick. But darling, you're sick. You can always piss off into the air, I'm my back and see them stare. They look me bad, but I won't mind. They look me bad. Cause he left me And two, two, two for my family And three, three, three for my heartache And four, four, four for my headaches And five, five, five for my loneliness Six, six, six for my sorrow Seven, seven, no, 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 tomorrow Eight, eight, I forgot my name was for nine, 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 See them stare, they'll hit me bad, but I won't mind. They'll hit me bad, you do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, you do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, you do it all the time. 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 Violent Femmes and that was picked by my guest today John Hegarty John represents the Save Cork City campaign John I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the Sexton pub being demolished on the promise of apartments and the land is now being used as a private car park as an architect how did you view that? That's a difficult question to answer uh, because nobody likes to see anything 
being demolished. And that building particularly sat on its own, almost saying, you know, I'm the last of of your identity here um, as context within a location. But I mean, there was a planning application and the planning application concluded that it could be knocked. So uh, in that way, I understand why it was and I understand how it happened. And the wider question is, how do we value our heritage as being important or not? I would have said that the sextant was important in the minds of the people, but it was also important due to its rarity in that context. But then again, there was a planning application process was gone through. And, you know, you could say I do have a comment about that process. You know, in Paris, you have to put up a one square meter notice outside a site. So everyone knows there's a planning application on. And I like that kind of uh, process because we miss planning applications all the time. But like there's so many issues there about how we view the asset that is our city and how we view future development. I would say that. I'm sorry personally that it's gone. I understand how it happened. Um, In the context of the city centre, hundreds and hundreds of buildings have gone in the same process. And as I'm aware of them, it 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 frightens me far more what I've seen that's gone in the city centre through process like that. Uh, But it gives me uh, uh, hope that that particular circumstance has um, made people far more aware of what's going on around them and talking about the environment. So there is hope in that. But of course, I uh, I do feel uh, uh, even sad that people have to see that happening to to become aware of of what's happening around them in in its entirety. You know, there's so much going on. And I do also think that a building like that can be kept and uh, uh, the developer's process and needs can also be facilitated. And, you know, because it's that balance that has to regenerate the city. So, you know, I don't know if I can say any more about it. You know, (laughs) it's it's that is such an interesting case, if you like, about awareness about what we should be doing, what we should be doing, shouldn't be doing, but about the process that we have that has allowed that to happen, which actually, if everybody understood it, it might have been the right thing. But then should the council have said this can only be demolished after you you lay your foundation stone and you actually have a contract for the planning application? So you have to wonder that uh, the building could be demolished and then uh, the 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 proposal wouldn't go ahead is that perhaps the thing that people are feeling is unfair in the process had they been allowed to knock it but only if if the buildings proposed were built that might be a different story in different in people's minds and perhaps that's a learn for the council Apparently there was a pub in England that are, that was knocked very like the sextant and because they didn't build the proposed planning, the developer had to rebuild the pub brick by brick. Uh, but uh, that might have been, in that circumstances, they might have said that, uh, that the two were connected. I don't know if that's been said on mm-hmm. this, but, you know, I think it's important when things happen that we learn from them but that we don't hold on to the the the, the problem kind of uh, mentally. You know, it's not good to hold on to that um, or 
or any of the issues, because I think that if we can cope with, if you like, the difficulties and even the horror that's happening around us, uh, we can move forward better if if by through that coping, we can be stronger in raising these issues and whatever. So I see the process by which people have gone uh, seen that and being hurt by that. And I really feel for the hurt that people have about it. But I also hope that people can turn that energy into actually being firm about what we want for the future. When you graduated as an architect, did you think that one day you become you would become a campaigner and essentially an activist? What things have you learned about yourself from the campaign? There must be a lot of positives to take from it, but is it a case of high highs and low lows? Look, we're learning about ourselves every day. And obviously, we all have, um, you know, we live in a time now where, we, where we're more aware of our personality types and everything like that, you know. So it is quite interesting. But I'm just, you know, somebody who grew up in Bell and Temple, who knew nothing about their city. And uh, I suppose uh, I've lived through the torment of a, of a comfortable enough life and existence when you think about what's happening around the world. And so um, I suppose in one way, I'm very happy to have the awareness that the campaign and everything like that has given me. I never thought I'd be campaigning for anything like this. You know, I always thought that um, if you got involved in something uh, like a campaign, it would be uh, something that seems more noble or or greater. Uh, you know, um, my my kind of knowledge of people who campaign for things is like Bob Geldof in Live Aid, and you know that we really should be concerned with just the comfort of people on the whole planet who might be starving or living in difficult circumstances. So. So how is it that as a society, people have to be campaigning over their uh, environment, their homes and everything like that? I really never thought that something as close to us as these issues would ever be threatened. I think when you're younger, you just think, well, if I if I can see that these things are valuable and whatever, and the leaders of society are older than me and more educated and they have more information available to them, I never have to worry about that and then you know then you grow up a little bit and suddenly you realize that you and your friends might be the people that have to stand up and be counted on an issue and you have to get past the point where you feel threatened by the processes of society and where you have to take on board or put aside the idea that politicians have different concerns than you do that processes can be bigger than you and they can move just from their own size and momentum um, and that uh, people are driven by different things and that fear uh, comes in and uh, I suppose the social contract, you know, is broken. When the social contract is broken, I was talking to you earlier about Rousseau, you know, this is, Rousseau believed there was a social contract whereby we as citizens would be treated in a certain way. And therefore, it's that reason that gives up our power to those that are supposed to lead and executively lead and make decisions for our, our country. And that social contract, 
you don't realise when you're very young that you will get into a circumstance where you really feel deeply that that social contract has been broken. Um, and so it's a little, there's a little bit about understanding human nature, understanding how, how you know, forms of democracy work, whether they're, you know, direct or not, or whether how much influence and power people have locally and things like that. But actually, Rousseau believed that you can give up your power to others, but others, executives or politicians, have to remain aware of the contract by which you give it up and they have to act accordingly. And I think that what's confusing for people now in relation to uh, this Walls proposal is that uh, when government is forcing something on its own people who are actively saying, no, please stop, please stop. You know, we're willing to do the work to work it out, to make it better, uh, to understand this more. We let aside ideas of blame or anything like that because there's no place for that. Um, And we can go forward on this together. And no matter what the citizens do, the machine is either pushing them down or it's trying to move forward and struggle forward in a kind of a big bloody mess, if you like. Mm. And uh, that's a wake up call. That's a wake up call for me. Um, And of course, you can have different reactions to that. You can kind of withdraw and say, I'm not never being involved in that again. Or you can try to understand human nature and and kind of maybe let let go of it because it is the way it is. I was talking about Tao philosophy. In Tao philosophy, the movement of of our actions is a pendulum swing. And sometimes we move towards horrific actions and sometimes we move towards highly compassionate and together uh, actions that feed our souls and whatever. And uh, I was listening to someone talking about when you get together and you do things together in unison, how that feels that feeds the soul and how we need to do things together. And the isolation of the current uh, period in society has been, I think, very negative for us and very frightening for me and frightening for people in general, I think. And so, you know, you for many, you, you kind of don't. I never believed I'd be campaigning. I never believed that my environment would be so strongly threatened. I never believed that um, I would be challenged that way and that people around me would be challenged that way and that people, you know, that I have never met before would come up to me and say, I really feel threatened by this. It's really a terrible thing in my life. I never thought that I would understand some of the more difficult aspects of our human nature, that when people are frightened, they'll choose one side or the other in an argument and they'll never move from one side or the other. You know, all of these kind of things. So if I could go back, would I want this uh, or to have to be part of this? I'm, I'm not sure. But then if you're not part of something, how do you learn? So it's very it's very it's very complex, really. But I would have thought never in a million years that we as a society would do this. I just thought we didn't have the resources to look after our environment. I didn't know that when we did have the resources that we would make such bad decisions.
by Murder Capital and I was picked by my guest today John Hegarty John represents the Save Cork City and Love the Lee campaign John we've come to the end Okay I know you were involved in a book called Streetscapes and it was commissioned by the Cork County Council Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that book could inform how we move forward in regenerating our historic Cork City There's a huge amount of importance that I think could be placed on the identity of different uh, towns, villages and even Cork City in uh, the entire Cork County uh, that could kind of give us places to kind of of renewed uh, life, uh, more dwellings and also that we could, I suppose, um, reinvent, uh, you know, the, the importance we put on all of these uh, places. We've had a huge amount of derelict dereliction and we have a housing crisis and so what better to look at than the streetscapes of our towns and villages and so we were commissioned by Cork County Council to do this and uh, the book has just been published you can get it from the council it's a free uh, publication and it looks into what can be done to repair historic buildings, how you can intervene with new intervention and maintain the character of, of, of the towns and villages and even some of uh, um, examples referencing Cork City and how that might create a, a, a kind of a social and economic regeneration of all of these um, of, of different places around the county and how we can use these assets environmentally because um, using an old building is um, pretty low on resources. It's a good idea. Are you hopeful for the city? Well, we should talk about hope. I mean, hope can be a very damaging thing. You know, you can't be too hopeful because you can suffer from, from it. But, um, do you know, it's difficult to be hopeful about the city. Uh, we have done so much damage to it. And I think if you go out into the streets, uh, people would are very negative when you say to them, what do you think the city could be or what do you think has happened? And they will cite certain instances in the centre of town of big building projects and clearance and you know those that carried them out will say oh that was slum clearance and those that were against them will say no no no, no that was a kind of a planned uh, kind of degradation of an area and then slum clearance you know so there's, there's all sorts of issues about how we've approached Cork it's like we've always wanted to be a modern city we've always kind of copied what's going on in London and the UK we've we've kind of uh, tried to be more than we are but one thing we've forgotten to do is look at what we are, what we have and say, wow, this is brilliant. This is what we should be building on. 
And I think, um, am I hopeful? I'm not really sure. I really think that the system by which decisions are made, uh, the system that doesn't speak to to, to citizens, the system that puts up um, complete uh, conversation walls, if you like, or barriers in order to try and push itself and that feeds its own system rather than engaging with people is a big problem. And of course, leadership. Sometimes you just have a good leader and then things go well. And uh, that's wonderful for 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 process in, in the OBW or the city or in government or whatever. And then other times you don't. So let's just say I think it's possible that in the future we can be mature enough to put aside all of the concerns of position or um, the concerns that are driving us and really allow the conversation to have, to be to be had, that uh, recognises what's good for all of us and that we can move forward as a society, not just recognising that, but acting on it and looking at the outcomes of our actions, really seeking good outcomes and then seeking to understand how we get to them knowing that we may not have the answers initially. And uh, that kind of process and approach, if we could adopt that, if we could just let our guard down, feel the discomfort of engaging with other people, I think we could go somewhere, but I'm not sure where we're going now. We're hoping that um, there'll be more people that will also I suppose, create their own campaigns, create their own ideas and get involved. But we're also hoping that the institutions that um, may be struggling themselves to engage with new ideas or to do the right thing, either for all of us or for the city or whatever, that they will also make a change. I think it's there's a very complex messaging happening in society at the moment where everything from government is being fed down to people and people are being saying are being told oh this is your responsibility it's like i sort out my all of my waste at home but then the government might end up putting it on a beach in india because i'm being told that i have all this power to to help the environment or do something myself and it's almost unfair that I'm being told that all of that responsibility is on me. If you go back to the social contract, those that are running the country, those that are running it either as politicians or executive, they need to be responsible. And when they make mistakes, they need to be adult enough to say, we're human, we make mistakes. We would all accept that if anyone was willing to say that. Uh, but that's not really what's happening. So I think everybody needs to look back at the social contract because when that's working, there are no problems. And when it isn't, there are. Well, I'm hopeful that people like you and Frank O'Connor and Jude Sherry from Derelict Ireland, Virginia O'Gar from My Goodness, Mary Crilly from the Sexual Violence Centre and Katrina Toomey from Penny Dinners are in the city, then that makes me hopeful. John, thanks a million for coming on today. Would you like to play us out with your last tune? Yes, uh, it was between Chopin and Hazel O'Connor and I think we'll go for Hazel O'Connor because Eighth Day is just, uh, it's, it's something for everybody. <laughs>
tune in to Keeping Track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM.